Hi there. Welcome to Lake Ridge Community Church Podcast. Uh, this is a place where we get to share uh, some of our messages from Sunday mornings. Uh, we're glad that you're here to listen, but we'd also love to have you in person. So if you'd like to pop in some Sunday, we meet at 1030 at Our Lady of Wisdom School here in Chestermere. And uh, you can obviously check us out as well at uh, www.lakeridgecommunity.com. Thanks for listening. Hey, I did something really interesting with my daughters. Uh, we went and we have daddy-daughter dates, and that means that I take them. We usually go to McDonald's or something. Maybe we go to the playground, something. But we ended up at a mall in the city, and it was abandoned. There's utterly no one there. It was, it was, it was just. And I got talking to like the security guard, and I said, "What's what? What happened to this place?" He goes, "COVID. COVID happened." And it, and it dawned on me as I've been reading about the church across Canada, about Christians across Canada, what's going on, and it is feeling a little bit like that empty mall across Canada. And as I read this, you'd think that I'd get really down about this, that things are suffering across Canada, not only malls, but groups of people gathering, and all sorts of nonprofits are suffering, but especially the church is going through a hard time. And there's a part of me, as I hear these stories, is I... There's a little bit of excitement wells up inside of me, and it's, and it's because of this. The Bible says that when we are weak, He is strong. I have wondered for some time if the church, is, the church is a place where people are participating because there's something that we did that, that lured people there. <laughs> Maybe there's a light. Maybe there's a program. Maybe there was a project. Maybe there was... Uh, friends there. So something about the church was something that we made strong. There wasn't really room for God's spirit. But I think today we're, we're discovering a church deeply weakened, a society deeply weakened. And in that, I think we trust in the presence of God who says, but I am strong. <laughs> I have not changed. And I'm about to do something good and new. And so I live with this great anticipation. And so it sets up today for where we're going with our sermon series. We are doing this sermon series called Beloved. And every two weeks we're switching into a different phase, a facet of what it means to be beloved. And so today we are going to be talking about having a meal. Uh, you all have forks. You might want to hold your fork while this is happening because I'm going to reference it a couple times here. Is there somebody who you did not expect to have a meal with? I want you to think about that as I share with you some people that I had meals with that I did not expect to have a meal with. I was once having lunch with a person who was this close to becoming prime minister and sitting on this side, and on this side was a person who has been recently sent to jail for quite some time. A politician and a criminal, and I got them mixed up a couple times, but no, a joke, that's a joke, that's a joke. So... I to sit with somebody who's about to be prime minister and somebody who is a criminal. I once sat with a World War II bomber who dropped thousands of bombs on Germany on 50 bombing missions. He said one of his last missions, uh, they, they, they would sit in a seat made of lead so that when the bullets would come up, it would hit the bottom of the seat. And, not, and he said that they would come up between his legs because there was no protection there. And he told me his story. I once sat with an author whose book sold 10 million copies, and he encouraged me. I once sat for lunch with a homeless dad and a daughter who would go every time that they would serve lunch down at the drop-in center. And they would gather there with all the other homeless people. So I sat with this little girl and her dad. 
and she loved her dad so much. I once sat, I had a picnic at the zoo. A guy I know was released from jail and hadn't been with his wife and his kids for some time. And so I gathered them up and I said, I'm going to take you for a picnic to the zoo. And I took them to the zoo and we sat there and they had a meltdown. Because they'd never been to the zoo and there was too many people and they were in panic mode. They said, can we get out of here? We don't like this. He had spent so much time in jail that he did not know how to be out in the open. Who has somebody that you've had lunch with? Does anybody have a story? Anybody have somebody that they've had lunch with that just was an unexpected character? Does anybody have a story? A person? A rock star? Yeah, he's a star. There we go, yeah, yeah. Anyone else? No, Dad, that was me. But, but tell, tell the other one, the other one. It's good. Cool, cool. And he fumbled all the things, right? He was just always fumbling, right, over and over, right? Sorry, I'm just making, I'm, I'm, I'm full of them today. It's good. <laughs> Who have you had lunch with? Well, today, uh, you have a fork in your hand, and usually when you're given a fork, there's a certain amount of expectation, isn't there? There's a certain amount of expectation. Maybe you saw the fork there, and you're like, they're coming around with something, right? <laughs> there's something good about to happen here. This is what happens when we have lunch, is we are expecting something good. Sometimes there's an unexpected person that we're sitting across the table with. Well, this morning we're using this picture of a meal and guests around a table to explore our belovedness in Jesus. It's, it's our theme and what it means to be the church today. And more specifically, we're exploring in the Covenant Church, we have this affirmation, and it is this, that the church is called a fellowship of believers. A fellowship of believers, a group of people who believe. What does that have to do with a fork? Well, the Covenant Church began actually around tables in a time in Sweden when you were not allowed to. There was a time, we told some stories a few weeks ago about the way that children were raised in this time, but in this time, you went to only one church, it was a state church, and you could not gather in your home to talk about the Bible or Jesus without a special letter of permission from that state church. So you could not do that. So what these first covenanters, these first pietists started to do, was they, uh, when they started to have the Bible in their translation, they would go and they would gather in their home around a table. And guess who came out to these? Fringe people. <laughs> the oddities. The, the, the old fishermen out there. The single mother over there. The, the guy with the big business over there. People that you wouldn't think would necessarily be up and up in the big church system. This was ordinary people. Odd people, wonderful people. And they all came together because they, for the first time, it was like the democratization of the Bible, is they could gather around because the table was a place that everybody could sit around and everybody could share. So I got this, 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 this painting was, was done. I actually got a laugh at this painting because there's one guy standing on a stool. So I've been to lunches where people stand on stools. I'm sure you, you have too. But this is, they would gather around and they would eat and then they would start to read the Bible. And some, for some of them, this was the first time that they read it. And the state church hated this. They would come, they'd break it up. They'd like, no, none of you guys getting together because we're in charge. And for the first time, these people realized that Jesus was the one who was in charge. Jesus was the one who was forming his church. 
Jesus was the one who was gathering them, irregardless of their background, irregardless of how much they sinned or didn't sin. And this is how the covenant church began. So these people believed, in the words of a guy named Chris Gertz, that the missional church should take the shape of an ever-widening circle of ever-deepening intimacy with Jesus Christ at the center. I'm going to say that again. The missional church should take the shape of an ever-widening circle of an ever-deepening intimacy with Jesus Christ at its center. I think there's something very beautiful about that. It started to happen at a table of a few, and then they started to welcome a few more in. But this is what happened. As they started to come together and believe that Jesus was the center, they started to change. They started to change in beautiful ways with what they did with their lives, with their energy, with their skills, all of this stuff. And what happened is as Jesus was at the center, then more people could participate. So they read. They looked at the Bible. They had their plate of Swedish fish. And then around uh, each other, they huddled around this fire of faith in Jesus to talk. To talk about what they experienced, about what they saw in others. And what they saw is Jesus gathering people. And it was a mix of the most unlikely people. Susha Roberts, she writes that we eat over a thousand meals a year. And because of this, it shouldn't surprise us that many stories of Jesus happened around tables. Ordinary things. So, even if you look at the book of Luke, you'll discover in there that so many stories happen around a meal. Jesus had to eat, so did they. And this is how we get a glimpse of what a fellowship of believers looks like. You can, you can tell what a family's like by having a meal with them, can't you, right? Here's, who, here's just a quick blitz. Ten things that happened just in the book of Luke alone around tables. Jesus had these people around his table. One was an enemy, a tax collector. We've talked about these guys. They are the people who betrayed their people to the Romans. And Jesus had around his table a tax collector who he said, you should follow me and be part of my inner circle. You can imagine all the others were like, pa, this is bad. What? Well, he had Matthew around his table. He had an uninvited guest once, a woman. He was there having a really nice meal with an with a uppity-up Pharisee, a fancy meal. And who slips in the door but a woman who comes and tends to Jesus and washes his feet. Jesus had around his table 5,000 hungry people who came and Jesus provided for all of them. Or Jesus had busybody Martha. There's a story of Mary and Martha. But busybody Martha, she couldn't stop fussing enough to be at the table with the people. Anybody got one of them in their family, right? What about a critic? Somebody who came and was sitting there and was all worked up because people didn't wash their hands before they ate. He had a religious leader there. And then he had a generous host and a guy named Zacchaeus who shouldn't be generous. He took stuff, but then he turned and became generous. He had his students who with them he ate the Passover and taught them something about himself. He had a traitor in his friend Judas who would betray him. And he had a friend who denied him in Peter. Well, what a table, right? These people, almost all of them actually were believers in Jesus. Almost all these people, even these believers, they were also his enemies and traitors and sinners and saints and friends and betrayers and busybodies. And guess what? These people were all around and they were considered a fellowship of believers because of Jesus. Not because of them, but because of Jesus. We love each other and we can be together because of Jesus. 
It's a revolutionary idea, and a lot of people criticize Jesus for it. <laughs> this is not how you run a table to have these people sitting around there. It's revolutionary. It's an idea that shaped the beginnings even of our heritage as the covenant church, that we believe that we could share some space, serve with other people, and love alongside others to be gathered and active people because Jesus is at the table. Jesus is the host at the table, and he sets it for us. So this is good. This is good and easy to say. Conceptually, we like it, right? Conceptually, we like the idea sometimes of going, yes, I, I, this is neat, that God would invite all sorts of people. And I look around here at church on Sunday, and yes, it's pretty, it's pretty diverse. A lot of interesting people here. And I can join in. It makes sense until we have to actually try it. I'm going to be honest. There's people that I do not want to share a table with right now. There's a monastery on Patmos. This is the place where actually John wrote a lot of the Gospel of John and, and probably the letters. Um, but uh, there's a monastery there on Patmos, and there's this picture there. It's a very old icon, and it's showing Peter and Paul meeting for the first time. And at first, a guy named, uh, author named Andy Crouch, he writes about this, and when he first saw it, um, it's put there in the, in the dining room among the monks. And when he first saw it, he's like, well, isn't this nice? Peter and Paul, they're hugging in this like holy embrace of two holy people getting along. Isn't this great? The monks did not view it like that. They're like, no, these people don't like each other. <laughs> he, he said this. He said, the longer I looked at this icon the more I suspected that Peter and Paul's feelings about this meeting, again, it's their first meeting, were well complicated, he says. The expression on each of their faces is somber, even a bit suspicious. Indeed, as they embrace, they're quite uh, conspicuously not looking at one another's eyes, the way I do when I meet a long-lost friend. They gaze across, out over the frame of the icon, each looking at something beyond the other. These are not old friends reunited after a long journey. They are, in fact, very recent enemies meeting shortly after Paul's conversion from persecutor of the church to energetic defender of the way of Jesus. <laughs> Paul had been killing Christians, and now he's somehow inside of the Christian circle. He's welcome at the table. He's a believer in Jesus. And Peter's like, do you know what I've gone through following Jesus? I've been, on, I've been on a ship that was upside down. You know, I, I, I saw great things Jesus did, but now we're persecuted as a church, and now Paul just gets, he just gets right in the circle. You can imagine, he's like, yeah, good to see you too, brother, you know? <laughs> Why are you allowed at this table? We already had a betrayer at this table in Judas. He's dead now. Maybe the table of Jesus is, for the, is, is, is not for you, Paul. Well, here we have these followers of Jesus, and they're suspicious. Trust is rare, and they embrace because of what Jesus has done, and it's the thread holding them together. At least for these monks who see it every day, it's a reminder that they, too, are a fellowship of believers held together by Jesus in spite of themselves. I read a lot of stuff from monks, because monks actually think that they all get along, <laughs> but they don't. Why? Because they live really close to each other. Have you ever lived close to somebody else for enough time to be like, this is hard work? Jesus needs to be between me and this other person if, 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 if I'm to survive anything around here, right? So we experience this in a small way, and then we experience it in community here too. 
So John, who was exiled to Patmos, uh, which I love that it came from that uh, mon monastery, John writes a good deal, and we're going to kind of end with this here in, in, in 1 John. And uh, Chris read it this, this morning, but we're going to read and take a little bit of a closer look at this uh, verse in 1 John 4.15. We're going to unpack a little bit of it, and I'm wondering, do you think we can go back to that scripture there? Would that be fine to, to pull up there? So John writes the Gospels of John, and then he writes some of these letters, and he's writing these letters to a church that's kind of at a crisis. There's some hard things going on in this church. They're in a tough season. There's some people saying one thing, other people saying another thing. And here's John, who's known as the disciple that Jesus loved, and he is writing. And in his books, uh, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they get progressively smaller, they're short, and they're very poetic, and he pretty much uses the same word over and over, love. He talks about love an awful lot. And it takes a lot to, since he uses this word so much, it just, it just takes a lot to kind of get into uh, the books of John. And so um, we'll talk about that in a second. But he's fixated on how the nature of God, love, defines us too. That we are beloved, that we together can be united as allies, and even become a family because of God's nature revealed in Jesus. So we love each other because he first loved us. So let's take a look at this. So we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. So this love must be so tangible, you can actually put your trust in his love. You, you can actually lean on the love of God. This is, this is what is being promised here. God is love. Interesting idea. This is, this, this is a hard one for us. It's like God, his nature is love. Did you know the world was made in love? The world was, has been repaired in love. Jesus came in love. So when are we going to deviate from love being the way that we solve something? Not, not today. Love is a trajectory because of God's nature. All who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. This is really hard for us. Uh, to sometimes get is that if we live in love, we are already a big step into the life of Jesus. So many people who have come to faith in Jesus here at Lake Ridge Community Church came to faith in Jesus by learning what it is to love and be loved. And then discovering Jesus and going, oh, Jesus has been walking with me for a long time. I've been part of the family of God for a long time, but I did not know. So many people who come to faith here in our community come to faith because they look back over their life, see the love of God present in their life, and they go, oh, that's what that was. Oh, Jesus has been loving me this whole time. Oh, I don't have to like, like, there's a switch that happens, but the switch is just being alert to what Jesus has already been doing inside of us, right? God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more and more perfect. So there's this growth. We, there's this technical word, sanctification. There's this sense we step into it, and then, and then it's like things blossom, right? We go, I'm love, so this is changing the way I love. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we, like Jesus, because we live like Jesus here in this world. See, so fear is not part of this. I was really afraid. There's, I believe that on the day of judgment, I would show up before Jesus, and this is what Jesus was going to do. And he would pull my mom in, have me stand there with Jesus, and then he would say, your mom has to know all the bad things you did. And I was just like, 
going to be the worst day ever. As I'm standing there, my mom is like, okay, so on January 13, Preston did this. No, you didn't, you know? And my mom would be there to see all the bad things I did. And after we got all through that, then Jesus would say, hey, psych, welcome in. You know, it's all good, right? But he's saying you don't have to be afraid on this, on, on this day because love has you covered. So such love has no fear because perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. And this shows that we have not fully experienced uh, his perfect love. So I was afraid of punishment. I was afraid of my mom finding out all the bad things I did, right? It was fear. If fear is part of our expectation of what life in Jesus looks like, fear I'm not going to have enough, fear I'm not good enough, fear somebody else is going to run over me, fear I'm going to be offended, fear, 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 guess what? This is expelled in the perfect love of Jesus, right? Here we go. So we love each other because he first loved us. Did you know I do not love you guys? Because I'm just a really nice guy, or I've discovered something, or I've mustered up enough of it to endure you for a short little while, right? No, that isn't what it is. It's we love because he first loved us. When we know we are beloved, we can sit at the table with our spoon, or with our fork, and welcome other people around. Because we were first invited to the table, and we're like, hey, there's an extra seat. Come on over. Here, you taste, take a fresh fork, right? I can love because I know why I am here. If someone says, I love God, but hates his fellow believer, that person's a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God who we cannot see? I talk a lot about love of neighbor, because it is hard. I'm not a very good neighbor. I think if you lived beside me, you would discover that I'm not a very good neighbor. I'm kind of sometimes a good neighbor. I could talk a good talk, but sometimes when it comes right down to it, I fail at being a good neighbor. Because guess what? Real humans are harder to love than an idea of a human, right? Do you ever put your kids to bed at night and go, oh, me and Kelly put our kids to bed after like an hour fight. We're like, oh, our kids are great, aren't they? And it's only after they've gone to bed that we love the idea of our kids, right? And all through the night we dream of the moment that we can be together with our kids again. And then when they wake us up at 7 in the morning, we're like, why did we have children, you know? And we endure the the reality of them until they go to bed, then we're all soft again, you know? This is true, isn't it? We love the idea of loving other people until we have to actually encounter them. And this is what church is. It is the real stuff of encountering real people. Maybe it was a good thing for us to separate seats out, so we love the idea of our neighbor next beside us, right? Oh, can you go back for just a second? I don't know if I... Okay, so I love God, but hate this fellow believer. That person's a liar. We don't love people we can't see. How can we love God whom we cannot see. I sometimes wonder, if Jesus was here in the flesh, would we like Jesus? Would we like this short Middle Eastern guy who's talking about some stuff and has some stories to share and maybe calls us on a couple things, but really loves us so much? Do we love the idea of Jesus, or do we actually love Jesus? There's been a movement in the church that we love the idea of Christ. Christ Jesus Christ. Christ. We love the idea of a Messiah. But there's some people do not like, even in the church, do not like the idea of a Jesus. That's too close. Let's leave Jesus as a Messiah and a Christ way up here. But Jesus who comes into the world and sweats and tells stories and is part of things and loves doing some, some, some craft work now and again, loves some fishing, loves himself a herring or two now and again, we aren't sure what to do with that. It's too close. But neighbors make it closer. So, okay, let's go to the next one. And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. 
those who love being at Jesus' table must also really love having other people at Jesus' table. Right? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has become a child of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children too. So guess what? The church is a self-selecting thing. If you love Jesus and heard about this table called the family of faith and you join in, guess what? People can come from anywhere to join in, right? It's an open buffet. You get to join in because Jesus is inviting us in. And this is hard stuff. But, G, but John fixates on it. So we never can diminish the love to some kumbaya hippie peace tune. After reading this, I hope you see that this love is very tangible love. It's tough love. It's tough because we have to love real people. We have to love our kids when they're in front of us, like staining the carpet the same time as we love the idea of them when we're in bed, right? This is tough for us. So there's nothing about it. I, I, have, I have heard people say to me as a pastor saying, don't talk so much about the love parts of the Bible, but we've got to also talk about all the really hard stuff too. As though we're offsetting the kumbaya stuff. But I'm going, the love stuff is the hard stuff. It's very hard. It's not hippies. John just does not allow a kumbaya, hippie, peace, love way of loving. It is very real. Love is the character of God, and we are a fellowship of believers because we rally around this love as though we're gathering around a table. Jesus shows us how it's done meal after meal. If you want to know how to gather around as a fellowship of believers, just watch how Jesus does it. And then we start to mimic it ourselves. I'm sure people looked around the table and up at Jesus and wondered, what? What are these people doing here? What am I doing here? How did I get in this circle? But this is how the world is made right. Loving your real neighbor next door and setting a table and gathering around. John and Jesus says emphatically, this is how the world is made right. So this might surprise you that it's part of the plan that the church would be a place where people different than you come and they're beloved like you. That through them we meet Jesus, live faithfully, enjoy discovering our own belovedness, and discover that this is good news. And it starts with people around Jesus' table, and that includes you. Your forks. Grab your fork. We're going to end with this. When you have a fork, you're expectant, aren't you? When you are given a fork, you expect there's going to be something good on that fork very soon. <laughs> Something's coming around, and you're going to be involved in it. <laughs> This is what happens when we are a fellowship of believers is we're given a fork and we're given a membership in a group of people that are living expectantly. There's something good coming. My empty stomach is going to be full. My empty heart, my loneliness, my fear, my anger, my, my anxiety, all the things that I'm carrying that are really just a screaming out for God to meet us and fill us. And guess what? When we turn as believers, a fellowship of believers, we come expectant and say, I'm trusting that the one who's hosting this party is about to feed me. <laughs> I'm going to get what I need to get through this season. So we are fork people. And we are here because of a host. Not just a host. Have you ever been to a meal that you aren't very comfortable at because you know that the other shoe is going to drop? <laughs> Halfway through the meal, it's like, so when do we come to your place? You know? Why didn't you bring the wine? The other shoe's going to drop because the host isn't very generous. But guess what happens? When we come here, we have a host who is generous and who follows through with his promise that if he's laying out a table, that he is going to have a party. And you're included. And you get to feast. 
We also, when we have a fork, we believe that there's more to come, that what we see right in front of us isn't the whole story. We do not know what's coming out of the kitchen. We do not know the conversation that, that's going to happen. Do you ever have a really good meal and afterwards you are sitting there and going, I felt full, and not just because of the food. Because the people around this table said words to me that loved me. I felt accepted and cared for in this place. There's more to come, and we do not always know, but the Bible points a picture that there is more to come, that the host is doing something here with us. And I want you to look around. Everybody's got a fork. Isn't that interesting? Everybody's got a fork. These are people around the table that are also invited, just like you were, to the table. They're invited into the life of God, just like you. And guess what? You're given forks to give out. You're given forks because you can turn to other people and say, hey, guess what? There's a host, and he's hosting this thing, and apparently I'm allowed to invite you, and you're allowed to be a part of this too. Do you feel empty? Do you feel needy? There's this host, and he says that it's going to be okay. <laughs> he says that there's more coming, and all I got is a fork, and, but I'm trusting that if I've been given this fork, that I'll be able to live into what's true about the fork giver in this moment. We're a fellowship of believers because we believe in the promises of God. We are the people around Jesus' table. Amen. I want to end with just this here. On the back of this piece of paper that you've been given, it looks like like chaos, like like cartoon chaos. If you have seven minutes and thirty-five seconds this week, I would encourage you to do this. You can scan the little barcode at the bottom, or there you can type in the little YouTube Finder video here. But this is probably one of the greatest breakdowns I've seen of what the books of First, Second, Third John are in like seven and a half minutes. And by the end, I really hope that if, oh, and it'll, it'll explain what this all is. It's amazing that something so full can make so much sense after you're done seven and a half minutes. But I would encourage you to do your own journey this week. This is me, um, this is me re resourcing you, and we're going to be doing more of this resourcing so that you go away and take what you've heard today and then apply it to your own time where you can take your phone out and look at this video and say, what is the letters of John about? And I hope when you're all done, you will be like, whoa, I am part of something here. Jesus is doing something here. What's true about Jesus means something for my life. And I can live in peace with him and each other. And God's doing something in Chestermere. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the fork. Thank you for the invitation to be at your table, to be part of the fellowship of believers. And we believe that you love us. We believe that you've made a way for us to be at the table with you. And we believe that you are the one that made us and has a plan for us that gives us hope and a future. So we come to your table with thanksgiving in our hearts and praise. We come to the table saying, thank you that we get to be at your table. Lord, so help us be the people who turn with our forks and give them to others, who welcome others around this great table, and who look with grace to those across the table that we just did not expect to see here. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us when we're afraid. Come, Lord Jesus, soon. Amen. Please stand with me as I offer the benediction. There was a woman that I heard once, and she was, um, when she was buried, she, she wanted everybody to be given a fork, and she, had, she was buried with a fork. And apparently she wanted that because she believed that, uh, that when you have a fork, you believe dessert's on its way. I don't know if you heard, heard this story. And so she believed that heaven was dessert. And that everybody who came to her funeral should know, should be given a fork so that they know that when they pass away, the best is yet to come. 
And that's what they said at the funeral. The best is yet to come. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and grant you his peace as you go from this place. The best truly is yet to come. Amen?